Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. I've lived an exciting life that allowed me to make many friends. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. More and more people are listening to now and uh, agreeing that it is better than nothing. Uh, perhaps our guest today, a longtime friend of mine, will do the same and perhaps editorially comment on my editorial skills since he and I have been farm broadcaster friends for, oh my gosh, 40 years plus. Ron Hayes joins me from Oklahoma City, uh, the Radio Oklahoma Network. Um, Ron, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me today. When did you get started? The uh, first time I saw you pop up was at KFH in Wichita in the yeah. 1970s. Is that correct? Yep, yep. I uh, I, I arrived in, in Wichita from uh, from uh, my home in uh, central Kentucky. Uh, that was my first farm broadcast job. I'd worked in radio two or three years before that and uh, landed uh, replacing a, a gentleman or, or taking the spot that was held for many, many years by a gentleman by the name of Bruce Beheimer, mm-hmm. who was uh, in Kansas for like 40 years. And then from and there was, you moved to Oklahoma City. We were both there yeah. at the same time. And mm-hmm. about 1977, I recall, you started with the old Clear Channel. Uh, yeah, yeah. We were, we were actually pre-Clear Channel. And uh, we, uh, they had a state news network, and they decided that they wanted to ad- add an agricultural network. So they hired me, and I came down, and we set up, got out and started about 12 or 13 radio stations in the fall of 1977, uh, Oklahoma Agrinet. Ron, I want to talk in a minute or two about the cattle industry and all aspects of it, from the price of beef to the politics of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. But the first thing I want to do is ask you about the current situation of the drought in Oklahoma. I've got good friends all over the state, and there's a great disparity right now, it appears, on who got rain and who didn't. But overall, how is the uh, are the crop farmers and the livestock producers in Oklahoma doing up against this drought? It's a pretty serious situation. I mean, we... Uh, we got a rain event end of July, first few days of August, that about the uh, the northern half of the state got anywhere from an inch up to about uh, a couple of places got four inches of rain. Slap out Oklahoma in a panhandle of all places got four inches of rain. By golly, and uh, but but for the most part, it uh, uh, if you got down to Interstate 40, which kind of runs across the middle of the state. Uh, we got very little uh, poor precipitation anywhere from that point further south in this latest uh, precipitation event. And before that, it had been weeks and weeks, and all of during that time, 100-degree temperatures almost every day across the entire state. Uh, we're back into the high 90s and low 100s once again. Uh, we've got a little chance of some precipitation this week, but I tell you, the drought, there were, we're about 90% uh, in the uh, extreme uh, or, or moderate drought, rather, or worse. And we've got, uh, you know, a lot of folks that are very, very worried. Uh, we didn't get much hay produced this year. The uh, the pastures are not in very great shape. They're fair, 
but they're not in great shape by any stretch of the imagination. And so there's a lot of worry with our cattle producers about, you know, a lot of guys have already started uh, trimming back on their herds. Some uh, cull, a cull, a culling going on of our cow herd. Uh, we'll see more of that, I think, into the fall unless we get some remarkable amounts of rain in the next, say, six weeks or so. Well, I know that uh, midsummer in Oklahoma is often dry, mm-hmm. but uh, the droughts are really bad. And uh, I have friends in the southwest part of the state which haven't gotten any rain who are already looking at feeding cattle just to keep mm-hmm. the cows going until they can get to either wheat pasture this fall or grass next spring. That's right. And uh, right now the problem is uh, now, you know, the northern half of the state again, probably we've got enough moisture that uh, some of these guys will try to plant uh, wheat for wheat pasture uh, in a matter of another two or three weeks, uh, end of August. Uh, it, unless unless it, it stays close to 100 degrees, they may not try that then. But still, you know, we've got uh, uh, the uh, the southern half of the state, not much opportunity to get wheat, you know, planted and up to stand because we simply don't have any moisture in the soil profile. Ron, you are the, uh, in my opinion, um, leading policy guy among farm broadcasters as you follow the cattle industry. And uh, I say that because you've earned it through all these years of uh, a great deal of travel and a great deal of study to put yourself in that position. And I know that the uh, the beef industry is uh, really front and center for a lot of people right now because if you're a consumer, you're looking at a high price for beef. If you're a cattle producer, you're saying that you're not getting all of that high price. And I wonder how that is colliding within the forces of the livestock industry. Um, first of all, do you agree with that premise that the uh, livestock producer who's selling, let's say, fat cattle um, to the major packers uh, is not getting as equitable a price as they think they deserve? I think probably that was the case a year ago. Uh, most certainly as we came into the pandemic, uh, in 2020, and then uh, we lived out 2020 and most of 2021, we had some huge disparities because of uh, several factors. But uh, the uh, the wholesale box beef price that was reported on a regular basis by USDA was way, way high uh, compared to what the uh, cash price was for our slaughter cattle as well as for our uh, our yearling uh, yearling stocker cattle as well. Uh, you know, I, I think things have kind of swung back closer to where we've got some equity as far as through the pipeline. Uh, we still, you know, I think we still have not quite got there when it comes to the ability to say that uh, uh, packers uh, are not still in charge of a lot of this, this price um, uh, activity, uh, at least at the fat cattle market level. But prices have gotten better. In other words, we were... Uh, we were struggling about a, what dollar eighteen to dollar twenty a pound on uh, on slaughter cattle at this time a year ago. Uh, we saw movement into the fall. We're around a dollar thirty eight, dollar thirty nine, dollar forty in the southern plains this year on our fat cattle, and be- more than that up into uh, into the, uh, the uh, Iowa, uh, Nebraska, the, the northern plains, the Corn Belt region of uh, where they uh, feed cattle, and they've got a different attitude, a different opinion there 
versus the folks uh, in my in my neck of the woods. What would you say the criticism that the average livestock producer has of the beef packing industry? Is it um, predatory, too consolidated? What would you say? Boy, you know, that, that's, that's a tough one. Now, I think uh, it, it is, it's very consolidated. I mean, you know, you've got the, the major four packers that uh, have got just over 80% of the total uh, packing capacity and handle that, you know, that, that percentage of the cattle uh, on, on a regular basis. Uh, there's been a huge amount of money uh, that the federal government's come up with to try to put in to the, uh, the packing, the processing industry, to try to uh, maybe to, you know, uh, diversify that a bit. There's been a lot of talk about that. There's been a lot of uh, smaller type operations that have tried to ramp up and uh, and be able to give uh, some cattle producers some individual opportunities to maybe market their own beef uh, in into the the retail sector and directly to consumers, but it's uh, it, it is a very very uh, tough market. It's a it's a market that uh, you know when you start talking about the the packery end of the feed, the processing end, uh, it's you know up up to 2020 they weren't making a lot of money. Really, from uh, from 20, uh, 20, uh, 10, 2011, 2012, up through the uh, late uh, 2018, 2019 time period, they were making very little money. They were in the red a lot of times uh, on on closeouts, and you know the the, the apple turned. The, the the whole whole concept uh, got flipped on its uh, on its uh, up, upside down when we had the pandemic. And we had uh, huge amounts of, uh, of, of course, beef went out the wind, out, out the door as, uh, as consumers were stocking up, and uh, just the the fact that uh, we we were having tremendous problems with labor uh, among the major packers uh, that meant that they were not able to run at full capacity, and we got a lot of backlog of cattle that gave them a lot of uh, leverage over cattle producers and being able to basically not buy anything more than they wanted to buy. And at the price that they wanted to buy it at, and so they they were making a lot of money. You know, they were making hundreds of dollars on closeouts on these cow carcasses, and cattle producers were not getting a lot of that. Well, the cattle producers that I uh, talk to uh, have always had uh, desires to rein in the packers. That mm-hmm. if you look at the uh, the industry that turns cattle into beef. Um, it is very consolidated. Uh, it's uh, very expensive to get into it. And uh, so they either want the government to bust up the Packers um, like they did back in the 1920s and uh, make them uh, diversify, or they want to start their own beef processing plants. And um, through the years, that's been a, a great goal but it really hasn't worked out for most until the current time. And I wonder how are some of these little plants doing because they're backlogged for a year, as far as I know, on cattle going through there. Uh, they are. And I mean, you know, when you start talking about the uh, the uh, mom-and-pop type operations of, uh, of processors, uh, they're, they've, they've got, you know, their, their shackle space, their ability to handle a number of carcasses on a daily basis, a weekly basis, is pretty limited. And uh, they've got, you know, there, there's, some, there's some governmental uh, 
problems with that. There's there's the fact that you know if you're particularly if you're wanting to try to uh, uh, actually sell beef uh, into uh, a interstate market, a multiple state uh, a footprint, you've got to have you've got to have a federally inspected uh, slaughter, and uh, that's that's very difficult to uh, to get that standard up to that level. And then the fact that you know there's there's not as many inspectors around as you'd like to have. In other words, they they've been a little bit slow to be able to ramp up and get everybody that uh, might want a federally inspected uh, uh, packer or inspector. Uh, they they've had a hard time getting those folks in place. A lot of our states, uh, Oklahoma's been one of them, but a lot of other states have done the same thing. Is they they have put money. Uh, I know that uh, some of that early CARES Act money was put in Oklahoma into some of these smaller processing operations. Uh, some of our Indian tribes in this part of the world, they've stepped up and they've, they've kind of uh, uh, upgraded some of the processing that uh, is a part of their, uh, their, their, their tribes. Uh, they've uh, got some, a lot of individual folks that have taken some of these uh, grants from states and from Uncle Sam, and they're trying to you know, boost their uh, ability to run, run more cattle. Uh, and you know, but we're not talking about enough cattle in in those ind- individual situations to really make a difference as far as clearing out the backlog and making the industry quote unquote current. In other words, if if we were current, that meant that would mean simply uh, that that is jargon for the uh, the packers uh, having to scramble and bid a little more aggressively for cattle because there's not quite enough uh, cattle in the pipeline and. Up to this point, there's been plenty of cattle in the pipeline, and, uh, and that, that was the real problem that we had, in, especially 2020 and 2021, uh, when it came to uh, uh, the fact that the packers were not able to maybe process as, as uh, quite as many cattle as they had the capacity to, to actually uh, handle because of labor. And uh, that, that got the you know, cattle producers kind of behind the eight ball. Now, for somebody that's willing to come in, is able to find some processing capacity from one of these smaller packers, they've got the opportunity to then go ahead and capture some of those dollars that uh, the, the consumer is paying uh, with, uh, you know, there, there's been some co-ops of, of producers coming together to do that. There's some individual uh, uh, operations that are actually, uh, you know, being able to sell into that type of a market, and they're able to capture some of that extra money. But uh, that's not that's not the mass of the cattle industry at this point. I find that the demand for beef is really high, mm-hmm. uh, even though the price of it, when I go to the grocery store and and sum it up, is uh, incredibly high, uh, relative to what it's been in the past. I mean, I go to I go to Sam's and Costco and uh, Fairway, which is a chain that sells a lot of beef in this part of the world, and uh, you can buy. Twenty dollar a pound steak, uh, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, more accustomed to buy six dollar a pound steak, seven dollar a pound steak. But I wonder if you'd comment on not only the domestic demand, but it appears that worldwide the demand for U.S. beef is very high. Uh, it is, and then the the latest numbers are out. They came out, I think, last Friday. Uh, the U.S. Meat Export Federation uh, kind of crunches the numbers, the, the raw data that USDA uh, actually compiles on an ongoing basis. And we've got numbers now through the first half of the year, through, uh, through June of 2022. 
and uh, beef is actually ahead of a year ago. And, you know, uh, last year was an incredible year for beef exports. It's just so, so incredible, even with the rising prices. And uh, they've been able to build on that momentum thus far here in 2022. Uh, our major markets, the three biggies, are South Korea, Japan, and China, Hong Kong. Now, who knows what's going to happen with China, Hong Kong because of all the tensions, but that's another story. But for uh, Japan... Uh, the latest month, they were the volume leader in beef exports. Uh, they're a little bit behind uh, South Korea now. South Korea is our uh, is our value leader for the for the year thus far. Already, we've sold about 1.5 billion dollars worth of U.S. beef to South Korea. We've sold about one and a quarter billion dollars to Japan, and we've sold about one and a quarter billion dollars to China, which is remarkable because they still had some COVID restrictions in some of their big cities. So uh, it, it's quite a, quite a market. It's, it's also getting broader. There's a lot of other nations, Taiwan. We've heard about, of course, them in the news a lot. They're a big buyer of U.S. beef as well. Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, both uh, especially Mexico, uh, a big buyer of U.S. beef, and the uh, other Latin American countries uh, starting to see some rebound. Uh, because they've had a lot of restrictions over in Europe, but we've got a little bit of improvement on U.S. beef into Europe as well. So, you know, even though the prices are high, uh, these uh, these international buyers are buying a lot of U.S. beef, and there doesn't seem to be any slowdown in sight, at least at this point, uh, given uh, the numbers we've had over the first half of the year. Ron, do you know if any of that beef going to those high-value markets is being produced by small packing plants or is it coming from the majors and they're shipping it out? In other words, is anybody uh, who's in uh, rural America who's ramped up lately taking advantage of direct sales into uh, the Far East? Uh, it would be a niche market. It would be a really a tiny, tiny amount because we're talking about volumes that uh, are, are very challenging. You know, we had this uh, Ocean Act uh, a law that was was passed earlier this year, I think late spring, early summer, that uh, was trying to uh, help level the playing field a little bit for some of our international shipments. But uh, boy, this is this is not for the faint of heart. It's trying to sell into the international market because uh, the challenge is right now the uh, the prices on these uh, these cargo ships went way up, and they've they've come back down some as now, but. You've, you've got so much, there's so little room for error when you're trying to ship, especially uh, just a chilled product. Uh, you know, they, they, these markets are not really frozen markets that these, uh, these uh, international buyers are buying. They, they want the chilled product. And that takes, you know, it takes a, a, a processor with some real, uh, uh, real deep pockets. Uh, they, they've, got, they've got to have the ability to be able to, uh, to sell now most of the you know I think most of the uh, beef uh, the major packers they're not the ones that are actually selling a lot of this beef into the international market. There are some uh, other middlemen that are actually the ones that are handling these contracts and taking the risk and and actually getting that beef into these overseas markets. You know if uh, if China wanted to kind of play uh, uh, hardball with us uh, when it came to uh, uh, you know all this uh, political instability right now between the U.S. and the Chinese. You know that that could cause us all kinds of problems if you were a small guy trying to sell into the Chinese market, for example. So, 
I just I don't think that there's much, been much opportunity to sell if uh, if you're you know uh, not don't have kind of the wherewithal. You know, one of the major packers is the national uh, livestock and uh, national. Uh, they're one of their major purveyors of certified Angus beef, for example. And CAB, as a, as a brand, a lot of that beef is shipped into the international market. But again, they've, they've worked on that, and they've, they've built that up over, what, 30 or 40 years. Ron, let's turn, as we finish up, to the politics of the industry, the policies that you watch and what you uh, think is uh, potentially going to happen. Um, the Packers uh, definitely have political influence in Washington, um, but some people in the cattle industry say they have too much influence in the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA. Uh, do the Packers have seats on committees and votes within the NCBA, which overall can uh, impact the policy there? You know, I've heard that over the years, and I've, I've seen some of the conversations. You know, some of these uh, Packers have come in and made presentations at various committee meetings. But the guys that are sitting in the seats, uh, I mean, you know, they're they're not your guys that are running 25 or 30 mama cows. Uh, you know, got, you got to understand that. You know, these these guys that that show up, and and a friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, you know, you know the Hitch family real well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lad Hitch and then Paul Hitch down through the years, they both have gone on uh, uh, to heaven. But but uh, both both of them had the comments, and Paul especially, as he got uh, into the leadership at NCBA a few years back before he passed away. Paul said, you know, uh, the people that show up make the rules. They they make the policy, and and the guys that show up. Are these guys? And I mean, you know, there there's some smaller cattle producers, uh, but but you know, they're you're talking about guys that have got five and six hundred uh, mama cows uh, or more. Uh, they they've got you know they they run cattle maybe just not in one ranch, but they've got a couple of different places that they're running cattle. Again, they do that because of of, of Mother Nature, especially in this part of the country, because one guy may get rain. Uh, in the northeastern part of Oklahoma, while the southwestern part of the state, they don't get rain like like we talked about earlier. So they've got the ability to move their their, their cow herd around a little bit to take advantage of, of pasture and all that. But these are the kind of guys that are there. You know, they're not they're not small, tiny, tiny operators, but they are commercial cattle producers. They're the ones that are really sitting there. They're the ones really voting. And you know, I think. The the way that the industry's kind of kind of shaped up is it, it definitely there's a a corn belt uh, region and then there's the uh, the central plains and southern plains that uh, they've got some different attitudes about you know as far as what the government role should be when it comes to marketing of cattle uh, about uh, exactly what uh, what they want to see but you know end of the day. Packers really are not uh, involved in, uh, they're just not really involved, I think, on a day-to-day basis with the policy of, uh, of NCBA. At least I haven't seen it, and uh, I've been to most of their meetings, their summer business meetings, and their annual meetings over the last 20 years. However, Ron, there is a faction within the beef industry that literally hates the packing industry, and they figure that uh, anybody who even associates with them is also their enemy. 
an organization called RCAF, which mm-hmm. can uh, put out as much of uh, their propaganda as anybody else, despite their small size. And they seem to catch the fascination of a lot of cattle producers who, uh, in effect, are at the, if you ask them, seems to me they are leery of everything done by the NCBA because they think it's inappropriately influenced. And, you know, you mentioned ARCAP. They're, they're an interesting organization. They, of course, uh, really were, were founded uh, because they didn't like imports of cattle, especially from Canada and, to a lesser extent, from Mexico. And uh, their, their early strength uh, and their early fascination came in those northern states, the, the, the Dakotas and Wyoming and Montana. Uh, those were big, big RCAF states early on. Uh, they had, of course, they had some real uh, uh, things going on within their organization, and actually, we had a another group that was kind of spawned off of RCAP, U.S. Cattlemen's Association (USCA), and uh, they're uh, they're a little more, I, I think, reasonable about some of the conversations they have. They've tried to be a little more uh, mainstream when it comes to the cattle business. RCAP really hasn't. Uh, they have they have zero respect. They have zero love for NCBA. They don't like the beef checkoff particularly. They they believe that uh, the Packers are in in cahoots with uh, with the leadership of of both both of these organizations. And uh, they have they have thought them primarily. Uh, it, it's a legal. In other words, within their name, you break down the RCAF. It's the Ranchers Cattlemen Action Legal Foundation. And they've used litigation. They, they, they've really uh, taken a lot of folks to court over the years uh, when it comes to uh, various policies. They've, they've uh, sued the beef checkoff a few times. They've lost up to this point. They've, uh, uh, they've, they've uh, battled USDA and uh, so cattle producers that wanted electronic ID. Uh, they found a technicality there that they didn't go through the proper procedures on some of the rulemaking. So they got that all uh, backed up by three or four years. Uh, USDA is about ready to come out with a, no, a new EID rule, electronic ID rule, and I'm sure RCAF will not like that one either when it comes to the end of the day. They they have been uh, very much a, uh, a, uh, a an activist voice. They've associated themselves with some folks that are not really uh, great friends of the cattle industry, PETA, uh, and, and, and some others as well that a lot of folks uh, have, a, have a pretty hard time uh, getting along with the uh, the RCAF folks as a result. Let me finish up with this. This summer, the NCBA had a major meeting. Uh, it's not their big winter convention, but mm-hmm. a lot of policy issues come up. And uh, I wonder from your work and that of your network, um, what you think is the most relevant of what they talked about this summer that could get on the radar and even become policy in the future. I think probably uh, this year. In other words, you got, got to go back and a little. You know, obviously, uh, the, the world is still kind of figuring out what what it looks like after after COVID. And so, if you just real briefly go back and look at how uh, their meetings actually have happened over the last few years, 2020, they had a, a summer business meeting up in Denver, Colorado. That was, of course, a uh, as we were still kind of dealing with with COVID and everything, and it was it was a really an odd meeting, but it was a very eventful meeting 
because they did a, like a six-hour debate in their live cattle marketing committee over whether or not they supported this idea of mandated cash cattle trade. Uh, in other words, letting the government dictate uh, how, how cash cattle trade is going to happen on a percentage of the cattle. In other words, mandate the cash trade. And uh, they came out with their working group, and they came up with their 75% plan that uh, they operated through 2021, and it was successful to a certain degree. Uh, the folks in the uh, upper Midwest, the Corn Belt, have already hit the, the numbers that they, they need to, to basically consider themselves having robust cash cattle trade. It's our part of the world, Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico, parts of western Kansas that simply don't have a whole lot of uh, cash cattle trade. They improved the numbers uh, from that 75% plan that was developed in 2020, operated in 2021. Uh, they had a couple of annual meetings. They actually caught up uh, when their, uh, they didn't do the, uh, the 2021 annual meeting early in the year in CBA, but they did it later in the year, last August in, uh, in Nashville, and then they came back in early 2022 with an annual meeting. They'll have another one uh, this coming year in 2023 in early February. But the one, the uh, meeting that you're re referencing, uh, uh, Ken, is the uh, end of July meeting. Uh, this year they were in Reno, Nevada, and they really didn't even talk too much about the uh, the passage of the uh, of the Grassley Fisher bill out of the Senate Agriculture Committee. They opposed that. They don't believe that uh, there's traction to get that through the uh, the Senate, the full Senate or the House here in 2022. That that'll have to be looked at again next year. They did come out with some a wish list, if you want to call it that, for 2023 Farm Bill. They're not big Farm Bill uh, advocates, but they, they've gotten more engaged over the years. Uh, you know, way back when uh, Colin Peters, uh, Colin uh, Woodall was uh, in their, their D.C. Uh, representative. We talked uh, four years about Farm Bill. He didn't have a whole lot to say except for conservation. And they continue to be big, big fans of the conservation title, and they want to see uh, – uh, the uh, protection of uh, programs like EQIP, Conservation Security Program, CSP, and other voluntary conservation programs. They want to see those funded at uh, bigger levels uh, in the days to come. They are really big on something that's kind of come up in the last couple of years, some of these risk management programs, especially LRP, the Livestock Risk Protection Program uh, that uh, has been developed through RMA, the Risk Management a Agency, or crop insurance, and that crop insurance agents actually sell. They're, they're, really, they're really a big, big fan of those. They feel that that's a really a, a program that works for big producers and for small producers, and uh, this is, uh, they, they want to see more education for those and all that. And then the last thing that they really are, were big on is they, they want to continue to protect this uh, National Animal Vaccine Bank that uh, cattle and the pork producers, National Pork Producers Council and NCBA worked really hard to get into the 2018 Farm Bill. They want to see that money uh, continuing to flow to get the, the vaccine bank for FMD and for other foreign animal diseases, and uh, they, they want to make sure that that is a, a high priority uh, in this next Farm Bill as it's developed next year. Ron, you cover things so well. You walk this from one end to the other. <laughs> I do appreciate you doing so, and uh, it's love of life for you. I guess the biggest competition for you right now between uh, uh, is is retirement, since you are looking mm. at a at a potential to do so at some time in the future. But you love this so much, I'm not sure you're ever going to join our ranks. 
Well, I'm trying there. I'm I'm trying to get there. We're we're trying to slow down a bit. We've got a great uh, great couple of young ladies that are now part of our team. They're they're taking on a lot of the day to day stuff. I'm I'm still working uh, on our daily beef show that we we put out. Uh, we, some folks may have uh, heard our, our beef buzz. It's available as a as a short podcast on a daily basis, and uh, uh, you can you can check that out. But uh, we do that and. Uh, we uh, we send out a daily email that uh, a lot of folks still enjoy, and uh, it's just you know it's a lot of fun to cover the cattle industry. We 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 especially enjoy that. The relationships there are very real and very been been really very very uh, I guess a, a great a great bit of joy for for sure for me. And that plus uh, covering uh, our uh, our youth cattle. Uh, uh, industry, uh, the uh, 4-H FFA folks that are involved in our cattle uh, cattle uh, shows, uh, including the Oklahoma Youth Expo here in the state of Oklahoma. That's that's always been a lot of fun and, and uh, continue to be a big part of that as well. How can people get your newsletter, your daily, on the Internet? If uh, they want to go to our website, it's uh, oklahomafarmreport.com, oklahomafarmreport.com. And uh, on the right-hand side column, as it sits right now, it's going to change a little bit because we're getting ready to redo the w- website. But right now on the right-hand column, uh, you can, you'll see a, a, a couple little lines there that you can look at the archives of our emails, and you can actually subscribe to the daily email there as well. Uh, oh, you can also uh, text uh, uh, farm news, all one word, uh, to 22828, and that will sign you up too. Farm News 22828 will sign you up as well. Well, Ron, you, uh, you're a Kentucky native, but you're a heck of a good Oklahoma transplant. <laughs> uh, they said if I left Oklahoma, I had to bring somebody in to take my place. And uh, uh, no, they didn't. Uh, I left and you you've uh, done really, really well. And you serve agriculture uh, very, very well. So I appreciate what you have to say. And I appreciate what you do, and I thank you for talking with me here on this episode. You betcha, Ken. My my honor. It's uh, been a blessing to uh, to work with a lot of great folks in the agricultural industry, and a real blessing to be a part of our farm broadcast uh, fraternity as well. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.